If you'd like to uh, keep your Bible open to Philippians chapter 2 that Chris read for us, we're going to refer to that passage, and then we're going to also look at uh, several verses on the board, on the screen, I mean. I just want to clear up something about angels singing. Um, I was listening to... uh, a piece of classical music this morning, and and it it had a video, and they were putting up pictures, and um, one of the their paintings, and one of the paintings um, showed angels looking like little fat, uh, uh, like toddler boys, but fat uh, with little wings. And I'm thinking, where in the world did that come from? <laughs> it's like. The Bible says heavenly host, and don't think of a hostess. Don't think of somebody with an apron on who's serving you drinks. That's not what the Bible means by heavenly host. The word host means army, army, okay? And so if you wanted to think of a choir, if you've ever heard uh, a military choir, uh, I've heard the United States Marine Corps choir, other choirs like this, and you hear these warrior voices, that's what they heard. In fact, I, one of the pictures that came up that I saw was, um, it, was a, it was an accurate one. There's this army in heaven singing loud, very authoritative praise to the Lord Jesus and, and peace on earth. And the shepherds are like, but what I noticed in this painting was all of the animals were fleeing. They were like taking off. And there was just this sense of this bright light and these animals not knowing what was going on and the sheep are just kind of running away. And I think that there's something to uh, that. And we're gonna, we're gonna talk about these angels a little bit. And I just want you to understand that these, these, were, these angels are, they're, they're, they're fierce. They're not little uh, junior choir, okay? Um, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity to meditate on what you have given us in your son and who your son is and what this wonderful gift is. And Father, it is right that we would pause at some season of the year and think about this incarnation and think about um, this coming to earth and think about when that little baby breathes his first breath out of the womb, that the whole world was transformed and uh, a major, major life transformation was about to take place for, uh, for all, and that the king had come. And Father, we just pray and ask that you would please be with us as we meditate on these things, that they would come with a freshness and a reality, and that we would understand. Please help us this day to grasp and understand just what it means that the very Son of God gave himself for us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we've been, we've been talking about the fact that, that, that there's angels in the sky, and uh, there's shepherds, and there's, there's young Mary and uh, a young teenage woman who's pregnant and unmarried, has never known a man. There's Joseph, who angels come and tell him that this baby that's going to be born is to be named Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. And there's magi who come and, and bring gifts and, and try to find this, 
this baby that this star is directing them toward, and they know that he is a great king, and they know that he is he is he has come to reign and rule. And and what what is behind all of this? Like what caused all of this to happen? What's the meaning behind it? And that's what we've been trying to grasp uh, last week and this week. And last week I looked at the role of the father the Heavenly Father and what his role was. And, and we looked at how he gave and he sent and he made his son sin uh, that who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God and how he spared not his only begotten son. Today what I'd like to do is focus us on the son, on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and what was behind him coming and being uh, born in a manger. And I want to do this under two simple headings. And the first one is what he took on, and the second one is what he left behind. What he took on and what he left behind. And what, we, what I want us to do is I want us to, to sort of go back in time now in our minds. I want us to go back in time because that's actually what Paul does, for instance, in this Philippians 2 passage, is that he actually, in, in, in teaching in this passage, he actually goes in verse 6 before time began, and he talks about what Jesus, that Jesus was not, he was not, uh, he didn't consider equality with God something to grasp after. And so I want us to go back before the foundation of the world in our imaginations today, and I want us to actually sort of look over the shoulder, if we could put it that way, of, of what's going on in heaven before time began. It's this mystery that Paul has been talking about in the book of Ephesians. This mystery that was kept hidden through all of the ages and now has been revealed through Christ. I, we want to look at how that mystery was formed and, and what God was doing now that we can understand this and, and kind of what, what took place. And I'm hoping that what you'll do is, as, as, you, as we do this, that you will capture something of the wonder that the Apostle Paul felt his whole life. And he, he says this so well in Galatians 2 and at the end of verse 20 when he said this. Galatians 2.20, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what I kind of wanted to take as our entire theme today. I, have, I live by faith in the Son of God. Look at that. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's kind of going to be our theme. So what I'd like us to do is, is, in, our, is in our minds, as we're, as we're sort of in our imagination, we're going back before the foundation of the world, I want you to sort of, if you can, put yourself in Jesus' place, okay? So it, before the foundation of the world, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No angels have been made, nothing. There's the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we looked last week at how the Father sent His Son and gave His Son. Now we're going to look at it from the Son's perspective. Let me, before I do that, though, let me prepare our thinking a little bit. Anticipation. Think of the word anticipation. What's it like to anticipate something? Now, right now, kids are really super anticipating Christmas, and they're anticipating gifts. But, but think about how you take on an event, or say an event is going to come in your life, and it's an event that you don't want to come into your life. Like maybe you have to have a very, very painful surgery, or maybe you have to have... Uh, Maybe something is, is, is going to take place in your life that's going to be very, very hard for you. Somebody, somebody, maybe somebody is, is going to be passing away or, or, and they're in hospice or, or somebody's going to be leaving and going into the military or even to a war zone. And you, 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 you sort of, and so what you do is you anticipate. 
and you anticipate what's going to happen. And sometimes when we anticipate an event, it's the, our anticipation was actually worse than the event. And we, when we, we anticipate, oh, I've got to have this surgery done, or I've got to have this, 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 this uh, root canal done, and, and you get yourself all in a tizzy, and then, and then they, they whack you with all kinds of, uh, of, of painkillers, and then it was like you just laid there and said, you know, that wasn't that bad. That wasn't that bad. Sometimes the anticipation isn't bad. Sometimes the anticipation is equal to the event. Sometimes the anticipation is equal to the event. And, 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 and when it is, when you're anticipating a very difficult event and then the anticipation is equal to the event, the anticipation is actually part of the suffering. It's part of the suffering of that event. And sometimes you don't anticipate and an event happens and that event was so painful and so difficult that you said, man, am I glad I didn't know that was coming. Because if I knew that was coming, I would have never gotten involved. I would have never gotten involved with that. I would have never done that. Now, that by way of preparation, let's go back before the foundation of the world, and let's think of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Word. And this plan is being made for our redemption. And he, being God, has perfect, perfect anticipation. He knows exactly what's coming. He knows exactly what it's going to mean. The anticipation will not be greater than the event. The anticipation will not be lesser than the event. The anticipation will be as real almost as the event itself. And so I want to ask you, before the foundation of the world, as our salvation was being planned, listen and let's look at what the scripture says Jesus took on at that moment. At that time, Jesus said, and again, I'm going to speak in human terms here of the inner trinity. It's called the inner trinitarian agreement or the council of redemption. It's the trinity determining within its own good pleasure, his own good pleasure, how this is going to play out. The father sending the son, the father giving the son, and the son responding. I want you to understand that, that, that in, the, in the midst of this, God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is, is going to take some things on fully aware of them. So what does the Lord Jesus take on? Well, before we think about that, just think about who he is. First of all, he is God. He is God. Before the foundation of the world, and even now, he's always been God, but he is God. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God, with God the Father, and he is God. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. And notice also that the Bible says that he, was, he had tons of glory back then because he's God. He had lots of glory before the foundation of the world. In John 17, 5, it says this, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So think of the Lord Jesus now as God, God the Word, God, fully God, and full of glory and majesty and, 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 and the beauty and the light and, and the presence of, of him was just so absolutely magnificent that when angels are created, they just immediately worship. They immediately bow down. They immediately recognize his, his greatness. And he, he experienced that and knew that and lived in that for billions and billions and billions of years. Also recognize that he also lived in the absolute love of his father. 
In, in John 17, 24, it says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so here we have the Lord Jesus. He is God. He is full of glory and majesty, and he is deeply, deeply loved and experienced and living in the sunshine of the love of his Father. So what does he, so when they, they, they sort of, as it were, plan redemption, when they plan redemption and the father is sending his son and giving his son, the son must be willing, and he is because he loves his father, willing to take on a, several things. Number one, what's he gonna, willing to take on? Number one is he must take on humanity. He must take on humanity. He must join the race of Adam. He must descend from heaven, as it were, and become one of us. He must literally become a human being in order to secure our redemption. He must get bones. He must get blood. He must get skin. He must get muscle. He's going to need a, a heart that will beat every, about every second in order to keep his blood flowing and keep him alive. He's going to need lungs that will have to expand in order to get oxygen into his system. He's going to need to have a stomach that can process food in order that he can have energy and live. The very Son of God, the God the Son, God the Eternal One, God who is life himself must take on a human body. And not only that, he must be dependent He's never dependent on anything. He was life. Through him, all things were created. And now he must become dependent. He's going to need air. He's going to need water. He's going to need food. He's going to even need sleep. He's going to be dependent in order to maintain this, this, this human body that he is going to take on. And not only that, when he's early, he's going to be super, super dependent. He's going to need somebody to pick him up because he can't even walk. He's going to need breast milk because he, 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 that's the only thing that he, can, that he can drink. He's going to need to be bundled up in blankets to be kept warm. He's going to need a father and mother to protect him. And he was willing to take this all on. And notice in, Ephes in Philippians chapter 2, notice what it says. Paul is telling the Christians, be humble, don't be arrogant, and can, be, care, care about other people more than you care about yourself. Esteem others better than yourself. And that's what he says in verses 1 through 4. And then he says this, have the same mindset that Jesus had. Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, that means that's another way of saying who being God himself. He's in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. A better translation is, did not consider equality with God something to grasp after and say, wait a minute, no, no, I'm God. No, no, I'm not giving up any rights or privileges. He didn't do that, but notice what it says. And being found in a, I'm sorry, uh, but made himself, verse seven, of no reputation. He made himself a nothing, a nobody. Taking the form, so notice the difference, form of God. Here it's form of a bondservant, doulos, slave, and coming in the likeness of man. In other words, Jesus humbled himself to become a man. Now you may think, okay, okay, I get you on that. Wait a minute, wait a minute, think about this. Let me try to illustrate this for you. What if God came to you today? God came to you today and he said, listen. I need you to do something for me. I want to send you on a mission. You say, great, God, send me on a mission. That'd be great. I want you to glorify me by obeying. Okay, okay. I want you to be reduced down 
and to become a mouse. Actually, a mouse fetus. I'm going to put you in the womb of a field mouse because I want you to proclaim my word to the mice. So I'm going to put you right now, like, like you sitting right now with the, all the glory and dignity of a human being, I'm going to put you in the fetus of a little field mouse. She's going to become your mama. And you're going to live in her womb. Then one day in, in, in some little wrap, you've seen it in your lawnmower and in your engines and in your garage, in some little uh, thing of you know, grass, uh, clippings and everything like that down in there, she's going to give birth to you. She's going to nurse you. She's going to watch over you. She's going to try to protect you from hawks and snakes and weasels and feral cats and things like that. And it's going to be dangerous. And then her and her husband, they're going, to, they're going to take care of you and they're going to watch out. I want you to do that. You'd be like, God, I know you're God. Seriously? Like, you would want to say no. 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 Jesus said yes. You see, the distance between us and a mouse, that's, that's a big distance. But can you imagine the distance between the eternal God and a little baby born in, 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 in Israel? A little baby born, a little humble baby. But Jesus said yes. He said yes, of course. That's how they must be saved. He took on humanity. Second, he took on the sins of a cursed race. You see... When Jesus enters the race, the race is already under the curse. So he's, be, he's taking on humanity, becoming one of the race of Adam. But, but being in, in that race, that race is cursed. That race is under the power of sin. It's under the curse of sin. And it's under the death sentence of sin. And he has entered into that. And that's what Paul means when he says in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, when the very moment of the plan to be opened up had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice this. God sends his son. He's born of a woman. He's born under the law, which also involves the curse of the law that is upon us, to redeem us from underneath that law and that curse in order that we might be adopted as sons. The son of God became the son of man that the sons of men could become the sons of God. That's what's being said in this verse. But what that means is, is that he had to take on all of the responsibility, all of the guilt, all of the shame, and he must pay the price that we had to pay for our sins. In other words, he had to be willing to take on all of that debt, all of that guilt, all of that he must be willing to take on. All of the condemnation, all of the judgment, all of that he must be willing to take on. And he must be willing to pay that debt to its absolute fullest extent. If he doesn't pay it to its fullest extent, we will perish. One sin unpaid, we will perish. He must pay it to the fullest extent. He must pay every penny. He must do every year of the prison sentence. No early parole, as it were. He must, be, he must drink every single drop of the wrath of the Father. And he must be willing to do it. Now, again, go before the foundation of the world. The world hasn't even started yet. Adam hasn't even been made yet. Sin hasn't even entered in yet. But it's seen in, 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 in all in the eyes. And he must take this on and say, even before God creates the world, even before he creates the world, because it's all created through him, I will take this on. I will, I will take this on. I will, I, will, I will drink the last drop. 
I will die. I will be executed for them. And that's what the Bible says in one of the most mysterious passages, so mysterious, so powerful. Revelation 13, 8, it says this. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Those whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Look at that. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means in the absolute total perfection of anticipation that the eternal all-knowing Son of God had, he knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what he was taking on. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew all of the horrors of Calvary. He knew what was per he was able to perfectly anticipate it. And he knew with absolute perfect clarity what he was actually committing himself to. And he turns to the Father and he says, yes, of course I will go. Yes, I must go. Yes, I will go or else they will die. Yes, I take this on. Yes. So the plan is still being made. And he's saying yes. You see, dear friends, because the Son of God God loved us and gave himself for us. He fully committed himself to this. The third thing that he took on was the hatred of the cursed race. He's coming. The plan is that he would come to save a race that is so under the curse of sin that it hates him. And he is rejected by them. He will be rejected by them. And so, for instance, John says in John chapter 1, verses 10 to 11... He says this, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And then it says this, in John 15, 18, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. God, in a sense, the Father sent him to save a people who would hate him, to save a people who would deny him, to save a people who would reject him, to save a people who would laugh at him, to save a people who would curse him, to save a people who would call him illegitimate, to save a people who would call him demon-possessed, to save a people who call him devil-possessed, the people who, who, who viled him and who would produce violence against him and who would finally kill him. That's what you have to go. That'd be like God sending me down to become a mouse to save. And he said, by the way, all the mice are going to hate you. All the mice are going to hate you. They're, they're, you know, now, they'd hate me because they would remember what I did to all their ancestors every time they tried to get in my garage and the traps were there. But they're going to say, all these mice hate you. You're going into the earth and all of the earth is going to hate you. They're going to hate you. Now... Jesus says, yes, I will go there. I will go there. I love them. These hateful people need me to save them. He's loving his enemies because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. The other thing that he has to take on and realize and take on in advance is that he's going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan. And in fact, he is going to enter into the world that Satan has usurped. In one sense, you could say he was going to enter into Satan's world. Satan, who is the embodiment of evil. Satan, who is the leader of all evil. Satan, who has claimed the leadership of the world. And we've already seen this in the book of Ephesians. He is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler over the sons of disobedience. Jesus even calls him, and John, the, the, the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. 
Satan himself, when he tries to derail Jesus and, and, and to do what he did to Jesus, to do what he did to Adam to Jesus, says, if you bow down before me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world because they're mine to give. Jesus needed to go into that presence and Jesus needed to defeat him. And so think about this. We think of the Christmas story and it's so beautiful because it's so humble. It's so beautiful, and part of the beauty of it is that the Son of God came in such humble circumstances. He, he's, he's born of a, of a peasant family. He's born and laid in a manger. He's, he's, he's born, in, and, and, and the angels announce it to shepherds, and it's, and it's all just so humble, and, and that's beautiful, and that, there's, that's an important message in that, and the important message is, is that he has come to save everyone. He's come to save the common man. He's come to save everybody. He just hasn't come to save the rich and the famous, but do you know there's something else about that story? Do you know there's something else going on here? And we don't think about this enough. He had to come like this. He had to. Why? Well, think about it. This world was in such rebellion against God that Jesus had to sneak into his own world. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise, and is calling us to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. There's something to what Lewis is saying here. There's something to it. Jesus had to sneak into his own world. And that's why in the sovereignty of God, he's born in a stable. He's, he's kept out of, even out of the actual inn. He's kept there in a stable. And the guys who are brought to worship him come either from the far east or they come from the, cow, uh, from the, 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 past, the sheep pastures uh, out there at night and come to worship him. Because what happens what happens the moment that the word gets out into the broader world? Well, when the wise men come in and they talk to Herod, and Herod says, hey, tell me where he's going to be. Tell me where he's going to be. And then Herod runs to the, to the scribes and Pharisees and says, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where's he going to be born? Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea. And then what does Herod do? What does Herod do? He sends an army down there. He sends an army down there to butcher every young child, male child, born in Bethlehem. And for good measure, two years old and down. What, happened if, what would happen if every child, boy child in this church from two-year-old down was butchered last night? Butchered. These children were, these children were dragged out of their mother's arms and speared with a sword. These children were held up by their ankles while their crest and their heads were sliced off and their bodies were thrown down and they went to find another one and another one and another one and another one and Bethlehem was decimated. From two-year-old down, they were decimated. Why? Because Herod meant business and Satan meant business and there was a real threat here and Jesus is, is, is being, is being uh, is skirted out of there with, with Mary and Joseph. They, he's already gone. But he's going incognito all the way to Egypt. And he's going to stay in Egypt until Herod, the threat of Herod is over. This is a real battle, friends. He was really in danger. And in fact, as he grows older, he goes to Nazareth and he preaches. And they attempt to throw him over a cliff. And then he's on a boat on a couple of occasions. And the boat almost sinks. What's that all about? 
And then, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod and Pilate are all plotting and plotting and plotting and plotting, and finally their plot comes true, and they execute him. And so Jesus, before the foundation of the world, says, here's the plan. Here's what's going to happen. The Father's explaining the plan. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm in. I take that on. I'll do that. I'll go. And I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll go. i got to rescue them. We've got to rescue them. I'll go. I'll take that on. But you know what? So far, we haven't gotten to the, the worst ones. The worst one, I think, is this. I'm even going to give you one after this, but I'm going to give you the worst one, fifth, before the sixth one. He had to take on. It's a, this is even hard to say. He had to take on and agree to and engage himself completely in the fact that he would have to experience the wrath of the Father. The relationship, the eternal relationship that he had with the Father for that moment would be fundamentally flipped upside down. And instead of living under the absolute sunshine and joy and bliss and an amazing thing, what it would be to have infinite love coming at you all the time from the Father, infinite delight infinite pleasure with the Father, infinite pleasure with the, Father, the Son to the Father, infinite love for one another, infinite love. That was, going to be, that was going to be turned upside down for the sake of our salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who felt that just doing what his Father wanted was his very food, when he was standing outside a Samaritan village once and he had witnessed to the Samaritan woman and, and the people were coming out and Jesus hadn't eaten for a while and his disciples went in to get food and they didn't want to go in because they don't like Samaritans. And then they come out and said, Jesus, you got to eat something. In John 4, 34, Jesus said this. He said to them, my food, I don't need to eat. I'm not even hungry, guys. I'm so excited. The, the Samaritans are coming to believe. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But because of our sin was going to be laid upon him, and because his shoulders was going to bear all of our sin and his personhood, he was going to bear all of our sin. Remember, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Our sin was laid upon him so that he becomes the sacrifice lamb. He becomes the sin offering. Our sin is actually now his, as it were. He's never sinned. He's sinless. But now it has been placed on him and on him. And then what happens is that the fury and wrath and hatred that the Father has for all sin, even the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you could put it this way, has for all sin the absolute fury of his anger and hatred and just wrath for that sin is poured out upon Jesus. Do we know what that means? Do we get it? Do you get what it means for somebody to pour out righteous fury? I'll illustrate it for you. And this will fall short, but I'll try. A man's coming home from a softball game. Had a good softball game. It was fun being with the other guys. He's got his bat in his hand. And he's walking into his house whistling. And he hears screaming. He hears screaming. Muffled, but screaming inside his house. And he, walk, he runs inside of his house. And there is his wife, bloody. There's his wife being murdered. This is his wife being sexually assaulted. 
And he grabs that bat and executes righteous judgment. I'm not going any further with the illustration. But I'm going to tell you something. That would illustrate the fury of wrath. You probably wouldn't recognize the offender after it was over. That would be the fury of wrath. God the Father poured out the fury of his wrath upon his own son. Upon his own son who willingly put himself. See, before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus knew exactly what that was going to mean. And he said, I'm ready. Now, you say, but what about Gethsemane? Yes, Gethsemane, certainly Gethsemane. That's not because Jesus, the Son of God, did not anticipate Calvary. That doesn't mean that at all. That means Jesus, in his full humanity, who is also fully human, gets to the point of what he's going to say. And in his humanity, he pleads out. But what does he do in his humanity? Although fully God, he's also fully man. What does he do now that he's taken on all of our humanity? He says, not my will, but your will be done. Even in his humanity, he took himself. And he took himself and he stood under the ugly wrath, the terrible, ugly wrath, the scary wrath of God that is poured out upon sin. He's savagely beaten. He's nailed to a cross. He's hung on the cross. He's there hanging on the cross. And then all of a sudden, the sky, the sun darkens and it's dark. What, what a horrible thing. I hope when I die, it's a sunshiny day, not a dreary old day, but here there's a dark day as he's dying. It's a dark day. And then all of a sudden, Jesus cries out, who had been praying to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Father, forgive them. But now he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22. He's pointing us all back to this horrible suffering. And at that moment, at that moment, his father turns away from him. His father pours out his wrath and turns away from him in utter rejection of sin, utter rejection of the sacrifice lamb, utter rejection of what he is, what he has come to embody because our sin is upon him. And Jesus had to go through this experience of an eternal relationship with his father living in the sunshine to have the father turn on him and forsake him and leave him to hang there alone, despicable as sin. Dear friends, that will never happen to me and you because Jesus insisted that it happened to him for us. God will never leave you or forsake you in your dying moment, in your greatest suffering. God will never leave you or forsake you. If you sin and you turn back to him in repentance and faith and ask for forgiveness, he's going to forgive you. Through Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You will never be apart from God the Father. He will never forsake you. You're his child. But that was purchased because his own son was willing to take on our sin and be rejected from the Father. The final thing that Jesus took on is this. He took on death. You know, I'm getting older now, and as I'm getting older, I, it becomes very sobering to old. And for you young people, you don't know what the old people are going through here. You truly don't because I didn't. Death's coming close. Death's coming close. The next thing, the next big event in my life is death. Sickness and death. 
And that sobers you as you get older. It, 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 it draws you closer to Christ. But I want us to go back before the creation of the world, before death was even a thing. And what do you have? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you have Jesus, who is life. Life. John 1, 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Nothing was further from Jesus than death. Jesus, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, he was life. He was the life, and through him life came. It was all things were created through him, and nothing was made but was made. Jesus was the one who was giving life and life and life and life to the creation and life to the, to the sea creatures and life to the birds of the air and life to all these things because God was making these things through his word. The word was made flesh, and the word was And Jesus was life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me and you will have life. He's life. And now the Father is saying, I want you to go through death. Now, if God were to say to me, Todd, two times I translated people straight to heaven, they didn't die. Enoch and Elijah. You want to be number three? I'm like, yes, yes. I'm in, I'm in. Thanks. And here the Father is saying, you who are life must walk straight into the jaws of death in order to save your people. And Jesus said, I'm in. I will do that. I love them. They'll perish without me. Yes. See, this is why Paul is so amazed. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dear ones, these are the things that Jesus took on. Time doesn't permit me to go into much detail about what he left behind, but let's think about this for a minute. What did he leave behind? I really fear for us Americans. I really fear for us. Because I fear for us Americans, I fear for us Americans more than I fear for my friends in the Dominican Republic who are desperately poor, very poor. I fear for us more than for them in one sense. And here's the sense. I fear that if a depression, a serious depression ever came to the world economy, a serious depression, or the grid went down for some reason and, and we were without electricity and power for months on end or maybe years on end, or there was famine and, 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 and the crops weren't growing, or there was war, I fear for us Americans more than I fear for our Dominican friends because I feel that we are so unprepared for that. Just emotionally, you see, we have known so much plenty and so much safety and so much luxury and so much comfort and so much peace and so much prosperity. Many of us here probably have never known what it was like to actually have to miss a meal because of hunger. We don't know that stuff. Other, our, our, our brethren around the world, they know that. We don't know that. We don't know anything. So if depression were to come or the grid were to go down or famine were to come or war were to come and we had to suffer like they suffer now, we are, would be so unprepared. And part of the problem is we would be so depressed because we would remember what we left behind, what it used to be like. We would almost be paralyzed where they'd say, hey, we're kind of used to this. We go without meals. We wouldn't be like that. 
What did Jesus leave behind? He left behind heaven. He left heaven and came to earth. He left behind light and glory and joy and peace and love and security and beauty and splendor and what he called paradise. He's hanging on the cross and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're going back to paradise. He left all of that. And that's part of the commitment to leave all of that and to be in a, in a hay rack as a little baby. He left that behind. He left behind all of his prestige, all of his glory. He left behind his glory. He left behind a throne. He left behind the praise of angels. He left behind rulership. He left behind the adoration of angels. He left behind that. He left that all behind. And he left his father's side. And he had to then live by faith and not by sight. Like we do. He left his father's side. Dear ones, if we went to any of our loved ones who are in heaven right now, we were to say, hey, you want to come back to earth? <laughs> are you crazy? Are you crazy? No. Don't you miss us? Yeah, but no. There's no way I'm leaving here. But there was a time when Jesus and the Bible tells us this was a mystery. The angels didn't know what was going on. Things of which angels longed to look for. There was a time when Jesus, sitting upon his royal throne, the delight of his father, took off his royal crown and set it aside, stood up and laid his royal scepter aside, by which he ruled the nations, took off his royal robe as, as the very son of God, king of all kings and lord of all lords, and laid that aside, walked down from the dais on which his throne was, walked through parting, confused angels, parting, parting like a sea wave, parting and parting. Where is he going? What is he doing? What is he doing? They're both bowing down at the, at the majesty and greatness of his being, and at the same time looking out of the corner of the Where is he going? What is he doing? Where is he going? And they watched him as he left heaven. And in some miraculous, powerful, mysterious, but glorious, beautiful way, reduced himself down to being an embryo in a peasant woman's womb. And the angels are in absolute dumbfounded and in shock. And then as he grows and develops, he's born. And at that point, some really special angels got very special permission to go down and announce him. This, the king, the holy one. And they burst forth singing. They follow him down from heaven and they burst forth singing. They're still not sure what all this is about, but they know who he is. And they're calling the shepherds to burst forth and sing as well. This is who he is. And the Apostle Paul's thought of this is, I have faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dear ones, do you, do, you, do you feel the wonder? Keep that up for a second. Do you feel the wonder of what Paul is saying there in your own life? Do you feel the amazement in your own life? 
What a savior you have. You can put your name in there. He came for you. He gave his life himself for you. And I love it. It doesn't say he gave his life. Paul says he gave himself in all that he is, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, in all of his offices, in all of his wonder, in all that he's done, in all that he's done. He's given himself for me. Dear ones, do you realize how loved you are? That the very son of God would do that for you. Yes, your father would die for you. Yes, your mother would die for you. Yes, your brothers and sisters, maybe your best friend would give their life. Yeah, that's probably true. But we're talking the son of God who took on your sin and took on your wrath and, 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 and suffered the wrath so you wouldn't have to, who took on a body, who took on death, who took it all on, who gave himself completely for you. The son of God gave himself completely for me. Dear ones, if that sinks into the very being of our personality and who we are, we will be consistently transformed people. We will be transformed. That's why in, in Philippians, Paul says, listen, stop being proud. Stop being full of selfish ambition. Stop thinking about yourself. Think of others more highly than you do. And think about uh, and be more concerned about others as you are your own concern. Have this mindset in you that was in Christ Jesus who gave himself like this for us. Oh, dear ones, this needs to filter in and transform us and change us. And it should have side effects, good side effects, good, welcome side effects. What am I talking about? You go to the gym, you say, I'm going to get buff, I'm going to get strong. And then all of a sudden, you start getting these good side effects. Hey, my blood pressure went down. I'm off my blood pressure medicine. Hey, I'm sleeping better. Hey, I'm calmer. I'm a nicer person to be around. There's all the, I didn't even know I was going to get that. Just for, I just wanted to be buff. Now, dear ones, when you come to experience this, the Son of God gave himself for me, you're going to find all kinds of wonderful side effects. You're going to start being less and less anxious. I cannot believe how anxious this culture is. I cannot believe how many anti-anxiety pills everybody's on. You're going to become less anxious when you realize, when it filters into your very soul, and all those dark, anxious spots are, are just broken open. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What in the world do I have to be anxious about? How about insecurity? We are so insecure. And we are so preoccupied with what people think about us. Oh, what are they going to think about me? Oh, are they going to like me? Oh, are they going to accept me? Oh, what are they going to think about me? And you know what that makes us? That makes us total self-centered beings. A self-centered being walks in, and I know it's insecurity, and we, we put psychological labels on all kinds of sin. That's crazy. It's pride. It's selfishness. What are they going to think about me? How are they going to like me? What are they going to think about me? Is everybody going to like me? They gonna, do they think I'm dressed right? Do they think I'm good? Do they like my kids? Do they like me? Are they going to like me? Are they going to like me? What kind of pathetic thing is that? When you realize, you know what? I don't really care about what you guys think because the Son of God gave himself for me and loves me. And you know what that does? It transforms you to be like the son of God. And instead of walking in that room saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What can I do to make you like me? You walk into that room and say, who can I love? Who has a need here? Who can I minister to? Who can I come alongside? Who can I give to? It's a side effect. There's a lot more I don't have time to tell you. Joy, peace, just happiness, 
contentment, anticipation of when he comes again or I see him again. I can't wait to see Jesus Christ. I can't wait to see him again. I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. And I feel like I'll say it for a thousand years. Thank you so much. You gave yourself for me. Wretched, sinful, worthless, nothing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving yourself for me. But dear friends, why don't we start now? Why don't we start our day like that? Thank you. Thank you. Are there some of you here who haven't come to Christ yet? You haven't come to Christ yet. Why? Why? You're still part of the world. You're still part of the ones that hate him. The world hates him. Don't you see you're not coming to Christ because your heart is evil and you're loving this world and you don't care to be right with him. Don't you see how evil that is? Don't you see how much you need Christ? Don't you see how much you need a savior? And here's the beautiful thing. He loves his enemies and he offers himself to you. Come unto me. Come unto me. Come unto me. I offer myself all that I, I offer to you. Come and be saved. Come, come. I know you're my enemy. I know you care less about me. But I'm telling you, I'm warning you, please come to me. And I will give you rest. I will give you everlasting life. I offer myself to you. Dear unbeliever, if you reject that call, I believe it will be the cause of the worst suffering in hell of anything else. I'm here in hell because I rejected his invitation. I was invited to heaven and I said no. Dear ones, don't say no. Say yes. Say, I come, Jesus, I come. Oh, Jesus, save me. I'm such a sinner. He doesn't care. He loves sinners. Save me, Lord Jesus. Save me. Repent of your sins. Turn to him, and he will save you. He's a wonderful Savior. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our silence is awe, awe of you and of your love for us. We don't have words at this point, but you know our hearts. We simply say thank you. Thank you that you came. Thank you, you said yes before the world was even created. Thank you that you were born into our world. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for giving us everlasting life. Thank you. Oh, Father, I pray that if there are any who are lost here today, no matter what their age, save them, I pray. Save them. Save them. Open their eyes that they might see your glory in the face of Christ. Save them. 
with your mighty hand. Change their hearts. Save them, we pray, for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.